when I was younger, I lived in the Middle East, and I had the privilege of being able to go and visit Israel. Uh, and if you've never been to Israel, I'd really encourage you, at least once in your life, try to find a time or a way. I mean, I know it's, there's some money involved, and I know that... Uh, you know, it's, it's jet lag and all that stuff. But I'm telling you this right now. I went to Israel twice. Once before I had committed my heart to the Lord and once after. And here's the interesting things, thing. <laughs> Both times I had deep spiritual experiences there. You may say, how did you have a deep spiritual experience before you were walking with the Lord? Believe me, there are many people who are not Christian yet today, and they are having experiences with God, and they know it. It's just a matter of time before they receive his love and bow their knee. And some people like me, they take the stubborn route. And so uh, both times I was there, I remember the land itself was special and powerful and just reeked of, you know, the footprints and imprints of what God did miraculous there, miraculously there. And one of the things that you begin to notice about Israel is it's not a very big country. Back then it wasn't a very big country. And even today it's not a very big country. Today's borders are, are closer than ever now of what it used to be. And it's not a very big country. The country of Israel is about 8,500 square miles. That may sound like a lot, but Kern County is 8,200 square miles. So the country of Israel is about as big as the county we live in. And yet we read of amazing miracles that happened in the Bible. People were healed. People were resurrected from the dead. People were fed miraculously from food that just kind of seemed to spontaneously materialize right in front of them. Cosmic events that came from the sky. Remember, uh, the Lord um, licked up with fire the offering of Elijah on the mountain. The Lord came down in glory and filled the temple of Solomon. All of these things happened in the country of Israel, a very tiny country. In fact, most of the key events of the Old Testament took place about 100 miles. If you draw a circle, 95% of the miracles happened within 100 miles of the great metropolis of Jerusalem. Now, 100 miles may seem like a lot, but it really isn't. In fact, even in the ancient day, 100 miles wasn't really that far. They were used to going on a week-long caravan or a two-week-long caravan. That was no big deal for them. For us, 100 miles is nothing. 100 miles is the distance between Bakersfield and Los Angeles, you're right? <laughs> Bakersfield and L.A., you know. How, I know people who commute from Bakersfield to L.A. Half of us, we go visit our doctors in L.A. It's no big deal for us to wake up in the morning in Bakersfield, drive down to an L.A. beach or an L.A. theme park, and then come back the same night. It's just not that far. It wasn't that far for them, and it wasn't that far for us. What is my point? Then as it is now, you didn't have to hike the Himalayas to see God do a miracle. Often the miracles that God did in the Bible were just a little ways down a well-traveled road. It was never far. In the Christmas story, we read about these wise men, three for sure. There could have been more than three. 
but three for sure, who came from the east to bring Jesus' gifts. Now the Jewish rulers and the leaders and the doctors and the most educated Jews in the world were told that these wise men were coming from the east and that they were told that they were seeking a Messiah that would be born. So when they came and they said, hey, we're looking for this Messiah, they knew right away where Jesus was going to be born. These people were educated. These people studied day and night. They knew the prophecies. They knew the locations. They knew it all. So when they came and asked the question, they said, we know exactly where the Jewish Messiah is going to be born. Oh, you do, really? Yeah, we know exactly. In a town called Bethlehem. Actually, it's a truck stop down the road, about six miles away. You can get there in an afternoon if you want. That's how close. That's the distance. The distance between Jerusalem, where everybody who was supposed to know biblical prophecy lived, and Bethlehem, the town in which the biblical prophecies were actually fulfilled, six miles many of you if not all of you if you really had to you could walk six miles some of you who are in good shape you could walk six miles in an afternoon and be back in time for supper six miles is all that separated jerusalem and everybody who was supposed to know about jesus and bethlehem where jesus was coming now of all the miracles that ever happened of all the amazing things that God did in the Old Testament nothing compares to what God did at Christmas God himself I don't know if the word empties is good but God himself fills a human being and comes and walks among us as one of us that's an amazing thing The greatest event in history was about to take place just six miles away. That's the distance between here and Panorama Park. Now I have a question to ask you. Foreign dignitaries come, and they have an entourage. Nobody there traveled without armed guards. They have an entourage. They come into Jerusalem. And this strange star appears in the east. All these sort of weird things are happening. If they had come to you and began asking questions like this, wouldn't you be just a little bit curious to see what they're talking about? Wouldn't you be just a little bit curious to say, you know what, I'm going to send one of our couriers with you. I'm going to send an escort with you. I'm going to send a messenger. I'm going to send a lowly private with you. I'm going to send the lowliest slave with you. I'm going to send somebody with you. Have you ever wondered, nowhere in the story of the Magi do the Jewish Jerusalem leaders ever follow the Magi and go to be with them to see Jesus? They never went. They never left Jerusalem. They completely missed the miracle of God. And the miracle of God was only six miles away why did nobody go i'll throw out a few reasons here reasons that i think hopefully apply to us today first one is this perhaps nobody really cared jerusalem was prosperous the religious leaders were wealthy their stomachs were full and their bills were paid 
They weren't really looking for a Messiah. They had very little need for a Messiah. They were, they were in cahoots with the Romans. They had this whole system work out. Life was good. And sometimes that is the problem when life is good. When all of our needs are met, all of our bills are paid, and all of our stomachs are full, sometimes it can be very hard to learn or recognize our need for God. And we thought, yeah, these idiots. They're looking for a Messiah. They don't need a Messiah. They should just move to Jerusalem. The economy's booming here. They might not have cared. They might not have cared enough to go to the little truck stop called Bethlehem and see what was going on there. After all, six miles can be done in an afternoon, but six miles is six miles. Or the second thing is, perhaps they couldn't be inconvenienced. It's possible to get so comfortable in life that God wants to do things in your life, but you're so comfortable, you keep missing all the things that he wants to do because we're too comfortable. When God does stuff, all throughout the Bible, very rarely does he do stuff within our comfort zone. Very rarely does he do stuff, and it doesn't require a bit of a step of faith for us to experience it, or at least a short walk down the road. Very rarely can you just be lying back in bed and you just get blasted with everything God has for you for the day. Often it involves taking a step of faith. It involves getting out of our comfort zone. And these people... In Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the ultimate comfort zone. Big houses, comfy couches, grapes that never seemed to end, food and coin, everything. Perhaps they were too comfortable to make that six-mile walk. Thirdly, maybe they didn't want it to be true. I meet people like this a lot. They don't want there to be a God and they don't want there to be a Jesus because if it's true, they know their life will have to change. They know they'll have to make a decision. They know that all of a sudden there's some accountability in the world that, they would ra- that we would rather not have. I know for me, that was the thing that kept me from Jesus so long before I finally bowed my knee and became a Christian. I didn't want it to be true. I didn't want to walk six miles to see Jesus. I had sin planned that night, and I didn't want anything to disrupt it. I didn't want it to be true. Perhaps some of those Jewish scribes and leaders were saying, you know, yeah, there's some prophecies about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, but we don't want it to be true. We don't talk about it. That's why Bethlehem is still this little small town. We don't want it to be big. We don't want it to become royal. So you know what? Go there if you want to, but it's amazing how denial can thrust us into an experience where we miss what God is doing in the moment. And then last but not least, and, and, and this is the one I think we're all to some degree guilty of, me, I am, should go to life in prison for it, and that is perhaps they were too busy. Jerusalem was a hustling, bustling city. Uh, they had classes to teach, they had people to meet, they had places to go, they had money to earn, they had houses to build, they had all this stuff going on, and the even though, yeah, these strange people came looking for a Messiah, but we don't have a spare second 
to go and check out what God is doing six miles down the road in Shafter. I mean in Bethlehem. The Magi, they knew so little. They came so far. They gave so much. And they received salvation. The religious leaders, the priests, the pastors of Jerusalem, they knew so much. They were so close and yet did so little. And they completely missed it. Let's pick it up here in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Here's the story. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? That question would have raised heads. That question, see, Think about the gall that they have. They are in front of King Herod and they are inquiring about the one who has been born king of the Jews. So this is, this is a little dance they're talking about. Herod may have said, well, I have sons. No, 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 no not, not sons. The son. The one. The prophesied one. Oh, that one. That king. That, that son of David king. That that remember, King Herod was not in the Davidic line. He was an Edomite, not a Jewish man. So he was half Jewish, but he was, his father was Edomite. And so, you know, he was not the legitimate heir or king of, Jerusalem, of, of Judea. So where is this one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. What? This is some strong language now. Not only are they looking for a king, they're looking to worship him. All this in front of the maniacal Herod. So, says this, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He was already disturbed for many reasons, but he was even more disturbed by this showing. And all Jerusalem with him, the whole town. Think about this. The whole metropolis of Jerusalem was disturbed by the coming of these great, wealthy, powerful men from the east. When he had called together the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Christ to be born? Herod didn't know, but they knew. Oh, boy, did they know. And so they didn't even take a lot of time to answer. They said, in Bethlehem. Herod, we all know that. For it's, it's written, it's what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. They knew this. So that's what they told the Magi. But instead of going with them, for reasons we've just talked about, they send them with a little bit of a, hey, if you find them, if you see anything, Come back and report to us. It's a very odd story if you think about it. Very odd indeed. Because the teachers and the priests that Herod consulted were the best and brightest theological minds of the day. 
They were professional students of the Torah. They knew the word of God. They loved the word of God. They revered the word of God. They learned the word of God. They debated the word of God. They studied the word of God. And most importantly, they memorized the word of God. These scribes would meticulously and ornately write each letter, taking hours and days just to do a few pages. They had copied this and memorized this to such a degree there is no way they could ever claim ignorance. They had more knowledge about the one true God than anybody else on earth at the time. And when the moment came, they completely missed it. In fact, they missed it so badly that when Herod found out that the Magi went home by another route, he realized he missed something big. So he went and he slaughtered every boy two years old and younger in Bethlehem. Jesus had, had left the town before that happened. That's how, that's, that's what, that's how Herod reacted when he realized, I missed it. So he just slaughtered everybody, well, the boys. Here is the danger for us smart, educated, Bible-saturated society. We can do the same thing so easily. We can miss God too because we're too busy, too indifferent, too critical, too controlling, too lazy. And here's the toughest part about God. He'll let us miss him if we aren't careful. He'll let us miss him just like so many of them in Jerusalem missed what was happening just six miles from eternity. This Christmas, I want to encourage you not to miss God, not to miss what God has for us as a church, not to miss what God has for you and your family or you and your marriage, not to miss what God has for you as a person individually. To not allow those things I talked about earlier to prevent you from having an encounter and an experience with God where instead of missing him, you get nailed with his blessing, with his presence and with his purpose. So in order to do that, I just got four quick points in how not to miss God during this Christmas season. My first one is this. Keep Jesus more in your heart than in your head. Keep Jesus more in your heart than in your head. Is it possible to know too much? I don't know. I don't think I'll ever have that problem. But you can study, study, study. You can compare, compare, compare. You can read, read, read. You can debate, debate, debate so many ideas that Jesus becomes something more you talk about rather than someone you worship. The Apostle Paul said that So much of the ignorant are ever learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. 2 Timothy 3.7 The scribes knew everything about the Messiah. They knew everything about Jesus as head knowledge. But the Magi, they had worship on their hearts. They had worship on their hearts. The Jewish Messiah for them, and they weren't even Jewish, was something that had taken place in their heart more than their head. How do we know? They didn't even know where he was going to be born. They didn't even completely understand 
probably that he would be God incarnate. But they came to worship him. And they sacrificed. They gave gold, frankincense, myrrh. And I know (laughs) I'm preaching to myself on this point because I have spent years. I can remember when my desk was full of books and commentaries and I mean, getting when I was getting my graduate degree in theology, you know, just just for so many years, I remember I was filling this up. And I remember there'd be moments where I'd feel God say, Tom, shut your eyes, put your hands over your eyes, kick the chair back and just pray for a little while. Just pray. Just connect with me heart to heart. Because it's so easy to skip the heart and make Jesus just a head exercise. To take him from being a person to being a theory. Number two, discipline against indifference. Oh, it's so easy to be indifferent to things when they aren't directly affecting us or hurting us. And I know sometimes I can really struggle about that. If it ain't my world, if it doesn't have to do with LifePoint Church or one of the people in LifePoint Church, then a lot of times it's like, you know what? That's not my thought. That's not my problem. I'm not going to think about it. And, you know, in some ways that's a healthy thing because you can't solve every problem in the world. But you can begin a habit of indifference that can sometimes inadvertently cause us to miss God. The world is the world. (laughs) The other day, one of my kids asked, Daddy, when the Bible says don't be like the world, what does that mean? And I remember going, Son, the world is complicated, isn't it? We see so much that we don't understand. We endure so much that we're not naturally prepared for. I said, you know, to the devil... (laughs) We're all just lunch on a menu. And in order to prepare that lunch, he has recipes on each of us. For some, it's, hey, I'm going to throw in a little bit of deep trauma, followed by a sprinkling of rejection, add in a little bit of failure, and a whole lot of shame, and bam, I just built a Tom Nackey sandwich. And for others, it might be a little bit of pride with a whole lot of lust, with a side of abandonment, covered in a critical spirit, and bam, maybe that's you on the menu. The goal of the enemy is not to destroy us. He can't destroy us. We're God's children. The goal of the enemy is not to destroy us. The goal of the enemy is to get us to care about nothing else but ourselves, to become indifferent. It's meant to take Jesus from being our friend that we follow, our commander that we follow, to nothing more than a theory. My point is discipline yourself no matter what, to whatever end. White knuckled and eyes closed if you have to, of having Jesus as your best friend. That is the highest goal we can pursue. Number three, expect God to move unexpectedly. One of the things that probably really shook them is they were 
the experts on the Messiah. They were the experts on Christmas. They thought they had all of the answers. When these yo-yos from the east were coming up, there was probably some snickering and conversations among the pastors. Wow, look at the way they're dressed. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, and they talk funny. Oh, and they look funny. Oh, they're just so different from us. How could they ever know something about God we don't? How could they ever experience something about God that we couldn't? Worst part is, Magi got it right. And they were getting it wrong. A lot of times, God will send something very, very different. Something unexpected. I don't know about you, but like when I wake up, I'll plan my day and I'll write stuff out. And I have this little movie in my mind that's like the preview of the day. You know, I call it Tom's trailer. You know, it's, it's, it's how my day is going to go. Sometimes I have that for the week. This is how my week is going to go. And I just have this little movie in my mind. I would really like this to go like this. And the worst part is it rarely ever goes like that. With God, you've got to almost expect the unexpected, to be ready to step out on faith at any moment of the day. For the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish priests, everything about the Magi screamed, we're not from around here. It's easy to discount people who aren't like us or circumstances that we're not comfortable with. But the Magi, they, they nailed it. And they were blessed in the process. Number four is my final one. Fail forward. I didn't have this up until Friday as a point. Usually I finish a message by Tuesday or Wednesday. But there just seemed to be something incomplete about the story. And I read it and reread it, and what really seemed to stand out was Herod's reaction once he saw that he missed the opportunity of God. He didn't humble himself. He didn't go, oh, God, I missed you. Man, I hope I catch you next time. He didn't do any of that. He got mad, and he killed baby boys. And as I was reading that, I realized, you know what? I do the same thing sometimes. Sometimes when I know I missed something God had for me, I know a, I missed a blessing he had for me, I missed a conversation he had for me, I missed a person that he had for me, I, miss a, I know I missed something and I could just get so upset and so mad, mad at myself, and then as I get mad at myself, I'm getting mad at everybody around me. Taking it out on everybody around me. Vomiting out anger, defensiveness, beginning to withdraw into my own pity party. I hate it, but sometimes I do it. That's not failing forward. That's failing backward. And if you don't stop it, you'll just keep sliding backward. It's in those moments where you go, all right, God, I gave into it this time and I may have missed you. But next time, next time, help me to never forget this failure so that I fail forward. And not miss you the next time, but nail the bullseye. When I read this story, I kind of, what I try to do is I, I try to put myself in the Bible stories. 
And with this particular Bible story, one of the hardest parts about this story for me has been when I put myself in that story, I realize I'm one of the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. I mean, that's what I do. It's, it's, it's where I fit. And as I began to do that, I began to pray, you know what, God, please never let me be one of them. God, I want to be the Magi. I want to be the man who dared to be different, unafraid of the rejection it may follow, but that I dared to be different, but in the process didn't miss God, but nailed your purposes like a dart on a bullseye. Amen? That we would live the difference Christ has for us. And that even if he shows up six miles from my house, I would be willing to move heaven and earth to be there. No matter how tired, grumpy, or hungry, or comfortable I may be. This Christmas, let's not miss what God has for you, for your family, for our church, for our world. That we would live the difference. Like the Magi, we would worship in our hearts and be blessed in the process. Amen? there's a story told about a famous composer. This composer lived in the 18th century, a little bit of the 19th. His name was Hayden. Haydn? Haydn. Haydn. He was a famous composer and he wrote, you know, like Beethoven and Mozart, he wrote these big symphonies and concertos and he wrote one called the creation that celebrated the seven days of creation from the bible he was an old man at the time this story occurred i think he died at 77 i think he was 75 when this happened and he was confined to a, a wheelchair he couldn't stand and he couldn't walk but in honor of this great musical composition, uh, they had a final symphony, a final concert for him to attend. And they put him up in the front row. They had flowers and wreaths and all these big high honors. And as they were doing this symphony, somewhere in the middle of it, he began to struggle. And everybody could see he was trying to stand. And using the last bit of strength he had, he stood up and he turned around. And whatever language he spoke, he just shouted, Not me. Him. Not me. Him. Don't miss that. I think that's what the Lord would say to us today. Don't miss it. Don't miss it by having our eyes so focused on our own lives. We never look up to see what God wants to do with us. Amen? Pray with me. 
Say, Lord Jesus, I give you my heart. I confess to you my sins and my mistakes. I ask for your forgiveness. Fill me with your spirit as I make you my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.